You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. recording well welcome this is uh the daniel three podcast i'm jacob uh thanks for joining us um today i have a person that um i encountered on facebook and have been conversing a little bit back and forth for a while and uh we thought it might be cool to record a little conversation uh with each other to share with you all his name is uh kevin craig so uh kevin thanks for joining me tonight thanks for having me yeah it's my pleasure so, um, yeah, we got to talking a little bit on Facebook on, um, uh, I mean, we've talked a little bit before on various posts and stuff on the groups that we're both a part of. And then we were um, talking a little back and forth on a mutual friends wall. And uh, it seems to be a lot of things that we have in common, uh, perspectives and stuff. And um, so I kind of wanted to uh, bring you on after that and uh was looking at a lot of the articles and stuff that you were sharing from your website. Um, can you describe, uh, you know, kind of what your website is and kind of what you're doing with your, uh, you know, particular flavor of activism? Well, which website did you look at? I've got zillions of websites actually. <laughs> well, I was on, um, I mean, the one I have pulled up right now is the uh, kevincraig.us, which is Craig for Congress. Um, and there were some you shared on, uh, other posts as well. I could pull those up, but um, you know, just describe everything. I mean, you know, I'm 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 new to you and what you're doing, and I, I tried to read as much as I could in the uh, little bit that I, time that I've had. But um, yeah, just you know, what what are the things that you're you're doing? It seems like you have a lot going on. Well, the the KevinCraig.us website, the campaign for Congress, that's just sort of a little hobby. I mean, I file I file for Congress every couple of years. I've been the Libertarian Party candidate for Congress in Southwest Missouri for, I don't know, maybe five or six times now. 
going back also when, when I was in California, I, was, I campaigned out there too. But it's just a way to get a soapbox, just a way to get in front of people. They have candidate forums and town halls and things like that. So that gives me a chance to talk to people about whatever I think is important. And uh, my, my dream, my long-term vision is to uh, convince people that the human race would be better if we didn't have this big thing called the state hanging over our lives. And of course, that's a, that's a big shift for people. I, I remember what advertisers say. They say that you have to tell people, people have to hear your message seven times or they have to hear the name of your product seven times before they'll buy. So the first time I say, first time I even hint that I'm an anarchist, that's a shocker for people. But of course, there's no, there's no chance I'm going to win, uh, especially in the district I'm running in. It's a Republican safe district. I would have to get 100,000 Republicans to jump ship and vote Libertarian before I have any chance of winning. And they won't even, that number of people won't even hear about me. They won't even know what a Libertarian party is or what I stand for. So that's that's not happening. So when I talk to someone, I try to guide them from where they are to at least entertaining the possibility of, of thinking about a state that's at least dramatically cut down, if not abolished altogether. Um, all the other websites I have, I just throw up a domain anytime I want to talk to a particular demographic audience and I pull up some domain name that sounds clever and uh, put up some articles about Christian anarchism. Um, that's, that's basically what I'm doing on the internet. Lots and were of you, domains. Yeah. And were you, campaign. were you a Christian and then became an anarchist or like, you know, give me a little bit of that. Uh, yeah. I've been like a, your, your evolution in, in these, uh, in these uh, genres and circles that we're in. Yeah. I've been a Christian all my life. Uh, when I was in high school, I uh, met this fellow named Rush Dooney, RJ Rush Dooney and the Christian reconstruction movement. And uh, that's what made me a, an anarchist. He was a very strong critic of the state, very strong critic of statism. And uh, as I read the Bible, it became clear to me that the Bible was kind of an anarchist manifesto. I didn't, at first, I didn't think about the word anarchist because I had always been trained to believe that anarchists were the bad guys. So you don't want to be an anarchist. But then I realized that there were, there were anarchists out there who were not violent rioters and assassins and bomb-throwing maniacs at all, but just people who said, you know, uh, if, uh, if the best state is the one that governs the least, the best state is the one that doesn't govern at all. So that's sort of where I moved. I, uh, I took a class in high school, I mean college, with uh, John Hospers, who was the Libertarian Party candidate for president in 72, I think. And uh, one of his texts was Murray Rothbard's book, For a New Liberty. And, and that's when I realized I could come out of the closet as an anarchist. There were people who were saying they're anarchists, and they're calling themselves anarcho-capitalists. So I realized I wasn't just totally nuts by saying we can do without the state. Here were some, I thought, respectable scholarly arguments that said we can have a peaceful, you know, a Christian society, a biblical society, not a crazy society. And, and, you know, when you say an anarchist world, people think of mayhem and, and chaos and disorder, but an orderly and peaceful society that, that goes by really conventional ways of looking at things, conventional ways of looking in the sense that a conventional way of thinking is capitalism is better than socialism. And that can be applied in every area of human society. And so that's where I sort of really realized I'm, I'm an anarcho-capitalist. So that was, 
that was where I became a, an anarcho-capitalist by name, by label. And that was, you know, back in 1977, I guess. Right. Yeah. And the, uh, you know, one of the uh, major tenets of anarcho-capitalism, as it were, uh, would be like the principles of, of self-ownership. Um, you know, at Rothbard was a major influence of mine as well. I read the uh, Ethics of Liberty when I first found out about, you know, extreme libertarianism or anarcho-capitalism. Um, you know, do, do you think that the Bible teaches anarcho-capitalism or teaches, you know, these principles of self-ownership or property rights? Or do you rather see these things as sort of uh, two different philosophies, but, but things that are kind of moving uh, in the same direction compatible, so to speak? Well, I don't, I don't think in terms of self-government, self-ownership. I think of God ownership. I think God owns everything. And so, you know, we have to we have to do what our creator and our owner tells us to do. So the libertarian angle is more humanistic, more autonomy. And my conception of things is more theonomy, theonomy versus autonomy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's that's another theonomy. That's a uh, that's a twelve dollar word. A lot of uh, I know you and I are both. uh, uh, another thing we share in common other than just being Christians and uh, self-described anarchist Christians is that we both uh, ascribe to reformed theology or, or Calvinism. And that, that seems to be the common uh, political view of a lot of at least well-known uh, Calvinists is, is sort of that they are theonomists. They're not uh, anarchists. They're not against the state, but they uh, they would rather push for either a theocratic state or um, or, you know, there's, there's somewhere between respecting the state, but, you know, having maybe somewhat of an anarchist lean in terms of recognizing God as the only true authority and, and, you know, the only source of authority that those states have is from God and ordained by God. Um, you know, so it was, a you know, the, theonomy is, 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 would you say that we should try to make people Christian first and, and then bring about more Christian governance, or should we be focusing on, on uh, reducing governance and then, um, you know, letting the uh, people's religious choices and convictions play out as, as they, as they will. Well, let's break down that $12 word theonomy. It comes from two Greek words, meaning God's law. The opposite of theonomy is autonomy, which means self-law. Everybody has his own God, makes up his own law. Now, what Rushduni told me was that capitalism works for everything except criminal courts. There was not a lot of talk about national defense, but that's, a, that's another usual thing that minarchists reserve for this thing called the state. But what helped me change a lot of my perspective, actually, was... Uh, studying the Anabaptists of the 16th century. Now, these, are, these were also reformers. They were Protestant reformers. They were also reformed, but they believed in a more radical and rapid reformation than the so-called magisterial reformers. The magisterial reformers believed that they had to wait for the state's permission to reform the church. And uh, so, and another thing that I think was really critical in my jump from a minarchist theonomy to an anarchist theonomy was coming to see uh, that the Bible does not teach capital punishment for us today. 
Now, just to just to wrap that up in a nutshell, that's a that's a position which is you know controversial in a lot of places. But the basic idea is, and I haven't read this a lot of places, but it seemed obvious to me. If you look at Deuteronomy 21, it says that if you have an unsolved homicide, that is, here's a dead body, and this guy didn't didn't die of natural causes. Somebody killed this guy. But we don't know who it was. Deuteronomy 21 says that the elders and the priests are to get together and they're to shed the blood of a heifer, a cow, you know, put their hands on it. And then they, they ask God that the blood shed by the heifer will provide atonement for our city. And, and so that the blood, the pollution caused by the shedding of innocent blood will be atoned for, be cleansed away, and uh, then we'll be back to, back to normal. No Christian in his right mind, believes that the state needs to shed the blood of a heifer anytime you have an unsolved homicide, because only the blood of Jesus can provide atonement. So what happens, though, when you find the perpetrator, the guy who committed this murder? What does the Bible say? Well, Numbers 35:33 says that only the blood of the perpetrator can cleanse the land. You had temple sacrifices, animal sacrifices, and things like that for most other sins, but some sins were so heinous that the only the blood of the perpetrator of the crime could make atonement and cleanse the land of this pollution. Well, I'm going, why do we need to shed the blood of the perpetrator? Doesn't the blood of Jesus cover that as well? And so that's why I became um, against capital punishment. That makes it, I think, a lot easier to embrace the idea of resolving disputes without this thing called the state, because people are not willing to get their hands dirty with capital punishment, as the Bible actually commands. They want professional executioners to do that job for them, and that's why they want to have a state. But if you're not doing executions, it's a lot easier to say, well, maybe we don't need the state, and that criminal disputes and all kinds of disputes can be resolved by people acting in voluntary agencies um, instead of this thing called the state. So that's that's a critical thing. Rush Dooney said that, that theonomy is the closest you can have to a radical libertarianism. And that's because for two reasons. Number one, the Bible, as Rush Dooney saw it, only allows for the state to exist in the cases of things like capital punishment. And uh, so that just says the state stays out of everything else. The only thing the state does is it does this job of executing people when the Bible commands them to do that. Um, and the other reason is because Without a common faith and a common law, um, a common belief that we're not supposed to hurt people, we're not supposed to take their stuff, a common religion, which people can agree on, that keeps society together. That, that gives us a working, functioning society because people adhere to that basic legal system that, that works in every area of life, business and so forth. Uh, otherwise, if everybody's their own God, then everybody can do whatever they want. I mean, if some guy says, well, you know, it's, it's Darwinian survival of the fittest. I need to kill someone in order to survive. Who's going to say he's wrong? Who can say he's wrong if we're all our own God and we can do whatever we want? So that's what creates a libertarian society is a common legal faith and a, a minimal state. But you really don't need the state if you're not executing people. There's, there's other things you have to do. So uh, that was what allowed me to uh, come to a position of a theonomic state, a state that operates by God's law, a state that recognizes, as Isaiah 33:22 says, that God is our king, God is our lawgiver, God is our judge, and he will protect us and keep our society together. 
So we don't need a state. We've got a king. We've got a legislature. We've got all three branches of government under the U.S. Constitution in that verse. So that should keep us humming. Hmm. Interesting. Um, I guess the question I would have towards that would be, I mean, do you think that when you, when you describe theonomy as being God's law, I mean, do you see any uh, distinction between God's law and, and sort of like, and like natural law or like what, what, what C.S. Lewis would call like the, uh, the law of human nature or these, are these kind of like the same thing? Cause I know that that is something that even non-religious libertarians and anarchists will, will reference. They'll reference just kind of like, you know, sort of like natural law. And that is, is their reason why, uh, states should be either minimal or non-existent because people seem to behave by this natural and, and know it exists. And the state often uh, is more useful at distorting that than it is enforcing it. Well, uh, natural law ultimately is humanistic. Natural law is ultimately autonomy because there really is no natural law. There's really no such thing. From a biblical perspective, the Bible says we all have, we all know God's law because we're created in God's image. We it's written on we, our hearts. When, yes, yes, exactly. Romans 1 yep. and Romans 2. When we condemn other people for stealing and, and for killing, we show the work of the law written on our own hearts. But that, that law on our hearts, that law that's part of our nature, is really only enough to condemn us because we condemn others for violating that law, but it's right. not enough to really give us a prescription. It's not enough for, real, for us to really um, arbitrate disputes because we can't appeal to an objective that is a law that's outside of our mind, outside of what we think natural law is, and that has to be the scripture. That has to be the Bible. So um, the difference between theonomy and natural law is that theonomy says there's an objective codification of God's law in the Bible, which we can turn to, to say, this is what God says, and this is what we should do, versus natural law, which is kind of, it, it really is, that it's subjective, it's not objective. So it really can't, you can't have a legal system that's based on natural law. You ultimately have to appeal to something that's more objective. And so, for example, uh, William Blackstone said that we all know what God's law says, and so that's a kind of a natural recognition of what God's law says. But ultimately, the laws of nature and of nature's God are to be found only in the Bible. So even in that setting, in the terms of America, in terms of our common law, the common law was based on Christianity. It's based on the Bible, ultimately. So you need that anchor. You need that objective anchor before natural law can work in society. So, so you would say the uh the more christian a society gets the less of a quote unquote state it would need but if there is a lot of competing moral systems because the population is not predominantly christian um it's hard are you saying it would be hard for that society to promote more libertarian states or you know or you know you know that more of a market law kind of society? I think it's probable that non-Christians tend toward the state. Half of non-Christians are going to tend toward a kind of escape. They're going to, they're going to just want to get out of way, get away from the state or the society. They're just into themselves. But there are others who want to have power over others. They want to be their own God and they want to be God over others. 
So they are always going to want to have a state because uh, like Hegel said, the, the state is God walking on earth. It's the apotheosis. It's the incarnation of man as a, as a, it's the most, the, the most obvious reflection or incarnation of, of autonomous man. We set up our state. It's the Tower of Babel theology. So there's always the more the more non-Christians you have, the more of a state they're going to want. Right. And I see what you're saying. It ties into what you were getting at. The more we have God's law, the less we need to appeal to this third party, um, because the more the more that the people uh, are submitting themselves to God's law, there's already that authority there and there's no need to appeal to another authority. Whereas when people reject that authority, reject God's law. There is a, I guess what you're you're hinting at is basically that there is a vacuum, and people by their nature, uh, you know, they don't just, they don't actually live by that. What was that saying? Like live and let live. They don't actually want to live that way. They want people to adhere to, you know, their own subjective views of what right and wrong are. Even you know, um, which is ironic because they they reject they reject God because. They they push these wishy washy sentiments of uh, you know these very self deistic proclamations of uh, being able to derive your own meaning and purpose and sense of right and wrong. But then when you look at uh, those same people and they go to the voting booth, they basically insist that anyone who thinks differently than them is a uh, a moral monster of of sorts. And they they almost are you know robbing from the Christian worldview, trying to you know deny the uh, trying to construct a new house, a new religion out of the uh, um, uh, that which they tore down. Right, right. That sounds like sounds like we're on the same page. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I see where you're coming from. I, I know that some people get weary when you talk when 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 one might talk about theonomy because they 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 might think that you know you're 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 trying to do a switch and bait and 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 push some sort of system where the church and the state are the, are, are the same thing. And, and really what you're pushing isn't libertarianism or, or, or anarchy. What you're pushing is, uh, you know, let's backtrack uh, instead of having democracy and these constitutional republics, let's go back to uh, the church being essentially the state. And a lot of people would be uncomfortable with that because that, uh, you know, looking looking at at history, that wasn't always that wasn't. You know, uh, there might be some over dramatic. You know, people might be overly dramatic about how bad it was, but it, it you know, from from my knowledge of history, it wasn't it wasn't very good. Well, when churchmen believe we need a state, then they're a danger to society. Just like when atheists think we need a state, they're a danger to society. I think there are two kinds of. Of anar- well, two kinds of libertarians. I'll just say that there there are those who want to be left alone. They don't want anybody to bug them. They don't want anybody to tell. Don't tell me what to do. Just leave me right. alone. Okay, that's one kind. But there are other kinds of of atheists, non Christians, who since they believe their own God, they are their own God in theory. They want to be God in practice, and that means they have a desire to control other people. And so they're going to try to impose their will on others so that they can exercise their autonomy and their Godhead over others. So that's why they create a state. If you, if you just believe that God does not give me the right to impose my will on other people by force or threats of violence, then, then you can have God's law be practiced by people. 
rather than try to impose it on them. So I don't, I don't believe in a state run by the church. In fact, for all intents and purposes, I don't believe in a church. There isn't a, an entity calling itself a church anywhere on planet Earth that would let me within 100 yards of the front door with my, with my views. So I'm, I, my definition of theocracy, the word theocracy comes from two words, two Greek words, meaning God governs or God rules. The way God rules is he reveals what he wants done. And if we're doing what he says to do, then we have a theocracy. We're obeying God's law, so he is our governor, and that's God's government. But it has nothing to do with the church or the state right. or, or human institutions. Right. Yep. No, I, I, I agree. I just wanted to make sure we were fleshing these things out so that they're clear, because a lot of times these words are, you know, you, just like just like the word anarchy can, can uh, bring to mind images of people throwing, you know, Molotov cocktails at, you know, cars and people's businesses. Um, <laughs> uh, the, the word theocracy can also um, bring about uh, images and, and things that might not be true to what the actual uh, term means. So that's, that's an interesting point. Where, where would be, like, if, if you were going to go to, like, a handful, maybe one, one or two passages in the Bible or, or, or even, you know, chapters or books even that, that really hone in on, uh, you know, where, where the message of, you know, as you put it, theocracy or not being ruled by statism, but being ruled by God's law, the idea of Christian anarchism, uh, where, where would you, you think, you know, we would point people who are curious about these ideas to, to first look? Well, I've got a website called anarchistmanifesto.com where I just basically go through the Bible. I mean, the whole Bible, the whole story of the Bible is we have God and then we decide to be our own God. And so Cain creates the state. Nimrod creates the state. Everybody creates a state because they want to be their own God. Instead of letting God be the government, they want to be their own governor. Yeah. So instead of yep. just obeying God, they create their own government. Now, you know, it's interesting to, to, to go back just a second to the words theocracy and anarchy. The, the state wants us to believe that without the state, society would crumble into chaos. So anybody who says, I don't believe we need a state, the state says, well, well, you're some kind of an anarchist. And that's a bad thing because if we don't have a state, we have chaos. And on the other hand, they say, well, we have God. I mean, I could say that. I could say I'm an anarchist, but we have God. We have God's law. And they say, oh, well, then you're trying to set up a theocracy, which is a state different from our state. But the, mm-hmm. but the state wants to believe that it is the source of order. So anyone who opposes the state is a source of disorder and chaos. So that's why those words are there. It's, but it's, it's good, I think, that we have the words, because if I say I'm an anarchist, at least you know I don't believe in a state. I don't believe right. in, this, in this cabal of people who are going to be imposing their will on other people by force or threats of violence. On right. the other hand, when I say theocracy, I mean a society of people who are functioning. I mean, in day-to-day life, seven out of eight billion people on this planet are anarchists in function in day-to-day life because they don't drop bombs on people. They don't lock people in cages and they just function peacefully. They work things out peacefully. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about anarchy. And that's what the Bible is saying, I think. You, I'll, I'll give you a few of my best passages. Uh, aside from the fact that all the way up through the Bible from, from Genesis to 1 Samuel chapter 8, there's no such thing as a state, except in the lives of unbelievers, except in the lives of pagans and, and uh, you know, the bad guys, uh, the guys who are always attacking God's chosen people. I mean, that's the story of the Bible. 
And finally, then in First uh, Samuel chapter 8, Israel says, why can't we have a state like all those other guys out there? And so that's when you finally have a state in Israel. But the idea, the ideal, I think one of my favorite passages is Micah chapter 4. Also, you see a little bit of this in Isaiah chapter 2, where it talks about a day when we all stream to God's word. We all want to be on God's path that he says, this is the way to go. We beat our swords into plowshares, which I think is a, a picture of a stateless society. And we're all obeying God's law and we're all living peacefully. And everyone's dwelling securely under his own vine and fig tree. And that's another website. I've got a, a nonprofit organization called Vine and Fig Tree, where we're trying to accelerate the fulfillment of that idea, which that's one of the most popular Bible verses in American history, at least at the, in the first 200 years of our country and the founding era. Everybody thought this was America was the place. The new world was the place where we could go and we could all dwell safely under our own vine and fig tree. And they quoted that passage all the time. So that's that's the anarcho anarcho theocracy in action. There is beating swords into plowshares and everyone dwelling safely under his own vine and fig tree. Another good passage is in Mark chapter 10, a favorite of mine. Jesus catches the disciples arguing about who's going to be the greatest, who's going to be the big cheese in the coming kingdom of God. And Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles want to be the big cheese. They want to rule over other people, but it's not supposed to be this way among you. And he says, you're to be servants. And the Greek word that is in Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, the kings of the Gentiles like to be archists. It's mm. the Greek word from which we get our word anarchism. Right. So he says, don't be archists, which logically is the same thing as saying, be an anarchist, but be a servant be helpful, help other people, help increase other people's standard of living, not throw bombs, but help people. And uh, that's, that's where I get the idea for sure of, of Jesus saying Christians should be anarchists rather than archists, rather than people who like to impose their will on other people by force or threats of violence. Yeah, those are all very good. And, and yeah, First Samuel 8 is a, even though my page is Daniel 3, um, that's more because it's just a good a good uh, analogous story, but for first Samuel eight was coming to mind before you said it, because uh, as you were saying, like the Bible is sort of this narrative of uh, God wanting people to be in relationship with him and to run their lives in accordance to his law. Um, not because of, you know, it's not because God's this big meanie head who just imposes these arbitrary things. It's because God knows that, that his ways are best. And um, it's funny. First Samuel eight is such a telling passage because it literally is, is God saying that to the Israelites saying you have rejected being ruled by me and my law and me dwelling among you. And instead you're asking for a King. And then God basically spells out, all the ways in which that is going to go terribly for them. <laughs> and, right. and then the end says, and in that day, when you finally realize how bad this is, you're going to ask for my help. And I'm just going to say, this is what you chose. I'm, right. I'm not going to, I'm not going to intervene when you reject. And, and this really ties into what we're talking about. It's when you reject God's law, because you want to do things your way. It is very, it is very tower of Babel-esque. Uh, when, when you want to, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it is almost a, uh, 
humans wanting to give glory to themselves to say that, you know, it, it's almost similar to just the original sin in the garden saying we, we can know, we can know better than God. We can, you know, we can rule ourselves. And, and it's interesting tension because when you compare Christian anarchism to traditional, you know, kind of secular anarchism, libertarianism, they, they, they don't sound the same, although they have a lot there is a lot in common in terms of what we can work towards, but um, there are a lot of secular anarchists and libertarians who despise Christ Christianity as a whole, but, but, but even more Christian anarchists, because we say true freedom doesn't come from the ability to just do whatever you want and derive your own value, but rather true freedom comes from uh, submitting to God and submitting to his, to, to, to his law and to his, uh, to his plan. Um, and, and that is where true, true freedom comes from. And that's why sin, you know, sin is described as bondage. And, you know, I think these are all just, um, you know, and, and also just the, how many times does Jesus say that, you know, you, we are not really of this world, we are ambassadors here, but this isn't our home. And the true kingdom, our, our true citizenship is in, is in heaven with God and not here on earth. Um, yeah, well, uh, the first thing I would say is that on 1 Samuel 8, I think that's really critical. The desire for a state is a rejection of God. That is pretty clear in that passage because all the functions of the state are functions that God promises to perform if we're obedient to him and we're, we're serving him. Um, I think that's one thing that secular anarchists don't like about Christianity is because it does have this thou shalt and thou shalt not emphasis to it. And they don't like, that's the, I don't like to be told, you can't tell me what to do kind of a thing. So that's why they don't like the Christian paradigm, because there's somebody out there, this big meanie, as you describe God, saying you can't do this. And so that's, that's, that's the difference, because there is this cosmic archist, so to speak, and it isn't, in that sense, anarchy in that ultimate sense of nobody out there telling you what to do. Uh, on the other hand, I would say that there is a really strong perspective that we are to build the new Jerusalem here on earth. That, I mean, the reason that God put us on earth, that's a, that's a really important question. I think, why did God put human beings on this planet? Why are we here? If, if, if heaven is our home, why did he take us away from our home and put us on this planet? And, uh, you know, why shouldn't we just all commit suicide and get back home as quick as we can? But I think there's something really powerful about our presence here on earth that this is, at least we should be thinking, I'm here and I've got a job to do and that's, that's what I should be doing and I should be focused 100% on this, on this purpose, which is transforming the wilderness into the garden and then transforming the garden into the, the garden city the, the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation is described as a kind of a city in a garden, a garden city. And so that's really what we should be turning the earth into is a garden city under God's law, under his direction. Agreed. Um, you have, I know, one a website on, on this. Um, we can't do a conversation on a Christian anarchism without addressing the, the, the big boogie, boogeyman passage of Romans 13. Um, of which it's, you know, it, I, I take a multi-tiered approach. I mean, I've heard probably 10 different ways of, of addressing this passage. You know, I, I have my personal favorites. Um, 
you know, and I'm going to share all, all these links that we're bringing up uh, during this video. I'll, I'll share um, probably in the comments section of, of this once we put it up. Um, but what would be like, uh, you know, because it's a pretty lengthy article, but what would be like a good summary of uh, what you think Romans 13 is, is about um, and uh, why it's not telling us that what God wants us to do is to create states? Well, um, in addition to being an anarchist and a theocrat, I'm also a pacifist. So Romans 12, the lead into Romans 13, I think is basically giving us a pacifist ethic. It's sort of an echo of what Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Hmm. Turn the other cheek, don't resist evil, overcome evil with good, don't return evil for evil, leave vengeance to God. That's a pretty critical thought right there. Hmm. Leave vengeance to God. Don't create a state... Jesus, uh, the Bible says don't kill, and that includes hiring a mafia hitman to kill for you. That, you, can't, <laughs> you can't say, I didn't do the killing, but you hired somebody. And in the same way, if you can't kill, you can't vote for someone who promises to kill on your behalf or to steal on your behalf or do things that God otherwise says you can't do. And so when it says leave vengeance to God, I mean, that rules out creating a state because that's not something you're allowed to do is to take vengeance on people. You're supposed to leave that to God. So Romans 12 says, overcome evil with good, that is giving, blessing, and doing all these good things to people who are your enemies, to people who are attacking you and doing evil. Do positive good things toward people who are even doing bad things. And that includes even, as you turn the page to Romans 13, even the most evil entity on the whole planet, the state. Even do good to the state. Even don't resist the state. Even don't try to overcome the state with evil. So it rules out violent revolution. It rules out all these kinds of violent attacks against the state and says even to do good to the state. But the subject of Romans 13 is in the first verse, and that's this word powers. And everywhere in the New Testament that that word powers is found it's describing a demonic entity or a demonic nexus between demonic powers and earthly powers. But we're, we're dealing with the same subject. Romans 12 is overcome evil with good. Romans 13 is overcome evil with good. The state is evil in Romans 13. It serves God's purposes. So it's the, it, you, can be, you can describe it as the minister of God. But there are lots of passages in the Old Testament that use that same kind of language. This describes Assyria or the Babylonians or whatever, some foreign army that's coming to crush Israel as a judgment of God on, on Israel departing from God. And it says, these people are serving my purposes. This isn't just a random attack. This is my minister coming to bring my judgment, execute my wrath. And that's the same as in, as in Romans 13, just saying that the minister of God, it's under God's control, so don't worry about it. Don't think you have to take vengeance. Don't think you have to respond with violence. Just let it, just do good to these bad guys and let God take care of it. But the powers, the principalities and powers, those are the bad guys. Those aren't good people. Those are the bad guys. So we're supposed to overcome the bad guys with good acts, acts of goodness, acts of blessing. Romans 12, 14 says, bless those who persecute you. That doesn't mean that persecutors are good just because we bless them. They're evil. They should repent of persecuting you. But the way we get the repentance is to help them by blessing them. And the same with the state. I mean, persecution, what better source of persecution is than the state? 
And so we overcome the state with good, not with violence, not with revolution. But it's, it's not a command for human beings to establish institutionalized persecution or institutionalized theft or any of these things or institutionalized vengeance. It's not a command to create the state. It's a command to respond to the state, to the evil, the institution of evil, the monopoly of violence as, as Christ did as pacifist. So it's, it's pacifism in action. Right. Yep. I would, I would agree with that. And there's an important distinction too, which it says to be subject to, but you know, if Paul wanted to say that we should be obedient to the state, I think he would have said that, but he said to be subject to, because I mean, obedience belongs to God. We have clear examples in, in the Bible and that's where I get the name of my page, Daniel three, which is the story of not, not Daniel, but of, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm always bad at the names uh, Meshach, Radshach, and Abednego, uh, you know, not, not violently rebelling against uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, but saying, um, you know, I'm sorry, we can't bow to anyone but God, and uh, you can throw us in that, in that furnace, and, and, you know, that's fine. God will either deliver us or he won't, but our obedience belongs to you. We are subject to your rulership, but obedience belongs to God, and I think Romans 13 is, you know, is, is echoing that. Paul could have said, obey, and if he did, then you'd be in a tricky situation of, you know, when the state orders you to do things that violate God's law, you'd be in conflict. But, but Romans 13 doesn't say obey. It says to be subject to, which means, you know, I agree with, I agree with what you're saying. It's a very much echoing the, the, uh, the message of turning the other cheek. Um, actually when Jesus talks about turning the other cheek, one of the things he references is walking. Uh, if someone asks you to walk a mile to walk an extra mile with them. And that was actually in reference to a common thing that Roman soldiers would do, which they would, they would get people to carry their equipment. They could, they could go up to people and, and make them carry their stuff for a mile. And Jesus was saying, you know, if a Roman soldier comes up to you and, and, and says, Hey, you're going to carry my stuff for a mile to after that mile is up go hey I'll, I'll go the extra mile i'll walk I'll, I'll walk a second mile in service to you which is um you know only something that you know only something that jesus would say <laughs> right right well um i think the key verse there is acts five twenty nine, where, where the apostles say we must obey god rather than man yes but that i wouldn't i wouldn't draw i wouldn't make a doctrine out of the difference between being subject and and obeying because Paul does say to Titus to tell them to obey the state. Titus 3.1 does use the word obey. And 1 Peter 2 also talks about obeying every law that the state creates. So we do obey their laws, but not if they command us to do something which is sinful, which is disobedient to God. We have to obey God at all times. And if the state commands us to do something that's not a sin, well, we obey that too. That puts an additional burden on us because we're trying to obey God and we're also commanded to obey the state wherever we can without sinning against God. But uh, where you have that conflict, we have to obey God rather than man. So we, we do have to disobey the state sometimes when it commands us to sin and obey God always. Yeah, and when you start breaking that down into application is where it gets complicated for me. Um, you know, because if we, if we say that we are 
obligated to obey or or be in sub, sub, submission to the state, except when it asks us to sin, you know, I mean, to me, there's not much that the state does or asks that isn't, you know, sinful. I mean, you know, just for example, I mean, uh, it's hard for me to be obedient to the state when the state conscripts war, killing, you know, hundreds of thousands upon millions of people, either directly by dropping bombs on them or indirectly by supporting regimes and, and foreign policy measures that cause, you know, war and starvation and whatnot. And that they do these things through the, uh, through, through theft, both by direct appropriation of people's wealth and resources and also through indirect uh, appropriation, you know, through the Federal Reserve of uh, just printing money out of thin air, which, you know, people often forget that, you know, that is often a form of theft. It's not people coming and taking your money, but it's taking away the value of your money by, uh, you know, making your $100 worth uh, less in a year than it, it's worth today. And that is a form of theft. Um, so to me, it becomes becomes very tricky when we, we start putting these things into practice. Um, and I am someone, you, you mentioned you're a pacifist. Um, you know, this is something where, you know, broadly speaking, I would identify as a pacifist insofar as, um, you know, I think that our preference and our heart should always be to avoid violence, to avoid, avoid using force. Um, I would not call myself a pure pacifist insofar as I don't think that God commands us to uh, always make our life forfeit if uh, we are under the threat of, uh, you know, bodily harm or uh, our life being lost or people around us, you know, our family or friends or neighbors um, being attacked or killed or incarcerated, whatnot. Um, you know, I, I do wonder where these lines are of application. Where where do you, because this is where we can kind of get into also a segue into kind of what you do, because I know you, you get a little bit of heat from this. Um, you, uh, you know, made a very, we've made a very detailed and I would say persuasive case over the past however many minutes, minutes it's been for why the state is bad. Uh, but then you, uh, you know, get criticism. Um, and I've gotten criticism for uh, various levels of engagement into these things that we are criticizing um, because we are trying to, uh, in in some ways, people would say that we are we are trying to resist the state. Um, wh- where do you think these lines are, and and wh- where can we find avenues of, you know, wh- when does resistance become uh, meeting evil with evil? I guess is because that's kind of what Jesus speaks against. He doesn't say, you know, he says return, do not return evil for evil. So wh- where where are our responses good and when do they cross over from being good to being evil? Well, if we do what the state does, we're doing evil because everything the state does is evil. And, uh, but not everything the state commands us to do is a command for us to do evil. That's the difference. Hmm. The state, by the, when the state says, don't steal to us, right. um, that's, a, that's a legitimate command. If the state says, if you steal, we're going to crucify you, well, that's evil because they don't have the right to crucify thieves, even right. though obviously there was a thief on the cross next to Jesus. So this, everything the state does is evil because nobody has the right to impose even God's will 
but certainly your own will, your imperial will on other people by force or threats of violence. But often the state commands people to do things that people should be doing anyway, according to God's law. So that's, you don't have to resist the state on that account. Uh, as far as pacifism goes, I've never met a pacifist who would say that if some guy's coming at you with a sword or coming after a loved one with a sword, you don't have the right to use a shield. I mean, every pacifist believes in self-defense in that sense of trying to defend yourself or trying to persuade an attacker not to attack or to try to use something to try to prevent evil from taking place. But ultimately, I would say it's better to be, it's the life of Jesus. It's better to be killed than to kill. You don't, if you're, if you're commanded to love your enemy, you want to try to keep your enemy from doing evil. You want to keep your enemy from sinning against God. But you can't love your enemy if you're intentionally killing your enemy. There's no hope of redemption. There's no hope of repentance if you kill your enemy. So, so killing, lethal self-defense is the, is the real issue, the real conflict between pacifism and everybody else. Now, as far as resistance goes, I used to say that Romans 13, the way to understand Romans 13 is, is that if the state says everybody must wear purple polka dotted shirt on Thursday, or there'll be a punishment of some kind. That's an, that's a lawless, evil, wrong law. But what I see from Romans 13 is go ahead and obey it. It's not a law of any consequence. It's not a sin to wear a purple polka dotted shirt on Thursday. It's a wrong law. And the state has no right to impose the law, to demand obedience to that law, or to punish disobedience to that law. But go ahead, wear the shirt, just don't, you know, that's, that's the kind of non-resistance I think the Bible is saying. But what the state really objects to is even if you wear the purple shirt, if you are saying to others, the state has no right to make this law, that's what's really offensive. And that's the real act of resistance is to say, look, I'm obeying your law, but you have no right to make this law. And your entire existence as an, as an entity of lawmaking and punishing judgment and so forth is illegitimate and it's immoral and you should repent and go home and get a real job. That's the real act of resistance. That's the real act of resistance is saying that and, and to say, well, I'm not going to wear your purple shirt because you have no right to make that law. Okay. That's true. You don't have a right to make that law. The state doesn't have that right, but Jesus says, just go wear the purple shirt, pay your taxes, render into Caesar, go the second mile, do all these things. But your overall message is, there's really only one king in this universe, and you, the state, are not it. And that's really offensive to the state, more offensive than, more resistant than simply not wearing a shirt. Now, of course, in our day, the purple shirt metaphor is the mask. I, I was think. about to go there. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not science, it's statism. And so, but, you know, I don't resist that that much. I mean, I resist it in my heart. I hate the state making it's a psyop, you know, a psychological operation designed to increase fear and uh, submission to the state. Everything about it is evil, but I don't see any biblical basis for saying I cannot obey that. I have to not wear a mask. And, you know, that's that's a different thing. Also, it's also it's, you can wear a mask and resist. And I, I see a lot of Christians who have uh, taken on that spirit of resistance while also obeying by wearing the masks but printing things on them you know cute messages like i uh, right. uh fake news yeah fake news or uh, i saw this one really clever one by a, a reformed facebook page that said this mask is as useless to save 
my life as my free will is or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's clever. <laughs> yeah. There um, you go. But uh, yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from and, and it, it, it is frustrating. Um, you know, when the mask mandates came out, I didn't wear a mask. Then I started to wear one and oh my God, there's just, there's so much noise on both sides. And um, you know, I, I feel as though, um, yeah, I mean, if, 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 if I agree with what you're saying, if the law that's being, you're being asked to follow doesn't require you to violate your conscience, probably better off in most cases to follow it and resist in other ways, um, rather than to outright disobey the law. Um, you know, I, it, it does become, however, I guess the, the, the worry is the, slip, the slippery slope. You know, it's, people are worried that um, if, if not enough people stand up against this, um, if people just roll over on it, well, what comes next? Um, there's a little bit of a, you know, it's like a, a slippery slope argument, you know, because people, I think ultimately, especially people in our circles, Christian, Christian libertarians and, and anarchists are, are worried that uh, what comes next is mandatory vaccines and more government control over people's bodies and and the decisions they make over their their health and uh, and whatnot things that should ultimately be you know it's funny the left likes to talk about abortion and say well, what's the decision between a woman and her doctor but uh you know everything else that that's not that's not a valid argument <laughs> right. the decision to do anything with your body uh is not between you and your doctor except the decision to uh kill a baby uh, intentionally and the uh, life of a human being inside of a woman's body. That's uh, right. rather convenient. Right. Oh, yeah. It, it, it tends to always work to the increase of state power. Right. Right. Not, not, not ironically, actually. <laughs> no, it's, it's intentionally on some level. Yeah. Either, either subconsciously intentional because that's their worldview, their worldview is statism, or that's even calculated. That, that, that is a, a, a very slippery slope of thinking, on a little bit of a tangent, but it's always hard for me when uh, when we're talking about these things that the state does, and then people ask, "Well, do you think people are actually like intentionally doing this stuff?" And it's like, man, I don't know. It's like it, it's I can go in my mind like down these rabbit holes of of just dwelling on this subject, like how much of it of the people in the state, you know, and, and then there's like people talk, you know people talk about the deep state and all that. And it's just like, how, how, how deep is it? Are people doing these things intentionally? Is it semi-intentionally? Are they just, you know, you know, my view is maybe they're not so much doing it intentionally, um, maybe in the, the foremost thoughts of their mind, but rather it is kind of intentional in the sense that uh, in their sin, you know, God's kind of given them over to their reprobate minds and, uh, you know, it's, they're just, you know, they are in in a sense intentionally running down that path, kind of being controlled by, uh, by those forces of darkness. And, you know, even if they're not in, you know, intentionally thinking about doing these things, that is what they're doing. Well, the way a court of law would handle it for a private citizen, if a private citizen intends to do this violent act, that's, that was, that's what they would ask. Did you intend to commit this act? And uh, yeah, that's what happens in a private situation. What gets complicated and for a government official is there is an intent to do the act, but 
they believe the act is legitimate. They believe the, they have an excuse or justification for doing that because they are the state. And so there's this level of self-deception. Now, right. one, of, one of my other theonomic mentors, Greg Bonson, he did his PhD in philosophy and his thesis was on this idea of self-deception, that human beings have the capacity to convince themselves that something is completely other than what they know it to be. So a person can convince himself that it's okay to kill, and he sincerely and truly believes it's okay for him to kill, even though deep down he knows it's not okay to kill. He deceives himself. So that's the critical thing. The state is able to deceive itself by saying, well, since we're the state, we get to do these evil things. But then I wonder, I mean, that that analogy you brought up, you know, makes me think of, uh, uh, what is it, Uh, the the novel Crime and Punishment, and... And, and I'm, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the names. Russian pronunciation is not a skill of mine. But um, right. <laughs> the uh, the main character, what is it, R- Raskolnikov? Or I, I'm going off memory. It's been years since I read the book. But um, you know, he uh, pushes himself to the point of justifying murder, and then the consequences of that for him, you know, on a personal level, are disastrous. Um, but I, I I don't know. I mean. On one hand, it kind of seems like the people who are politicians, you could say that they don't seem to be as disastrous. But then on the other hand, uh, lately more, we're seeing a lot of people's lives uh, collapse and stuff. And so maybe it is a matter, you know, maybe those things do destroy them, but they just, they're able to put off that destruction for a very long time. But it eventually always does catch up with them. Um but but this is a, a criticism that gets levied against you. <laughs> You're a, a self-described Christian anarchist, and yet there are other Christian anarchists who uh, uh, would and have, <laughs> I've seen them, label you as being almost indistinguishable from any other politician. That basically, uh, because of your decision to, in your local state of, uh, you said it was Missouri? Missouri. Missouri. Right. Your local state of Missouri running in a district that... You have no chance of winning just for the reasons that you already stated. Um, you're indistinguishable from any politician. You're just like George Bush and Obama and Clinton who have killed you know, millions of people. And you're just like every other statist who is voting uh, in a sense to uh, dominate other people and enforce uh, your will upon others. Um, where do you, where do you think the error is being made in 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 the uh, the Christian anarchists who who make that 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 criticism towards you? Like where do where do you think like their the the flaw in their either their logical thinking or their biblical uh, exegesis and uh, theology is? I I don't know. To be blunt, I don't understand. <laughs> I'm really honestly I'm trying to figure it out because I've had a lot of conversations with people and I'm going. Where is this coming from? I can't figure out how this reasoning, this pattern of reasoning unfolds. I just mm. haven't figured it out yet. But I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's no chance I'm going to win. Right. I mean, even, even if I actually won the vote, they wouldn't let me take the oath and be inaugurated and hold public office anyway. I don't know if you've heard that story, but I, in California, I passed the California bar exam, but they wouldn't let me take the oath. Yeah, I read that on your uh that the, the the one page that I, I read the most was your uh, the Kevin Craig dot US or whatever where you, right. you I read that your story of 
you know, you, you basically weren't allowed because you, you said that, um, what was it? Like you wanted to uh, have it on the record basically to say that your citizenship and obedience was to God first above right. the state and they wouldn't do that. And you, you repealed it and that didn't work out either. Well, I didn't repeal anything. I asked for some kind of exemption. I asked. For, yeah. There, there, the, the problem is that there is a Supreme Court case that actually expressly says in the case of a Christian who passed the Illinois bar exam and they said, well, you can't you can't take the oath to support the Constitution because you don't really support the Constitution. You support God. And the only reason you obey the Constitution at all is because God says so. But your allegiance is to God not the Constitution. So you can't take an oath to say you support the Constitution. And a federal court in Los Angeles said, well, that case applies to you, obviously. So you can't take the oath either. They said that to me. So that's that's the thing. So if I won the votes and won the election, immediately the Republican Party, which is dominant here in this district, would file for an injunction in federal court saying, don't let this guy take the oath. Don't let this guy hold office. But if I were actually to hold office, I mean, actually get elected and inaugurated, my whole purpose would be to confront and to thwart all the other acts of government that all the other congressmen are trying to take, to perpetrate, right. is to vote no on everything, to dismantle everything, to abolish all the, all the government offices and eventually get rid of the government entirely. So somebody, I, I don't understand how we're actually in practice going to abolish the state except either by violent revolution, which that's, that's not an option for a Christian, or for us to go in there and shut it down ourselves. And you know, that it, requires- it, it, it's really funny you put it that way, because I've heard that same argument, except not from Christians, from uh, libertarians. And that is their justification for political action, even though they are anarchists. Like I'm uh, I have a lot of friends who are part of, I don't know if you're familiar with the group, but the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. Yes. And, the, you know, like their whole thing is like, listen, we're anarchists. We want to see the state go away if it's possible um, or at the very least drastically reduce it, make the monopoly of violence something that isn't, you know, literally leading to the deaths of millions of people and the redistribution and destruction of, of all, you know, everyone's resources and wealth. Uh, we don't want to do violent revolution. Now they're not justifying that on Christian grounds, but they're just kind of like a violent revolution historically doesn't seem to work out. Doesn't, you know, there's a major chance that we will try and fail and die. Or if we succeed, a lot of times the revolutions that take down one state end up just being overswept by other competing ideologies and instituting another state that might be worse. And so they're saying, you know, in the terms of the options we have, uh, libertarians and the libertarians in the Mises caucus, they engage in political action because they're trying to avoid violent revolution. And I commend them for that. And, um, and, and, and to me, it's just, and I agree. I, I, I chuckled when you said you don't know where some of these Christian anarchists are coming from. I, I think it kind of comes from wanting things to be simple. And um, I think there are some people in their personalities that they like their theology and they like their worldviews and opinions and actions to be, and I, and I don't mean this to be belittling, but they, they, they want it to be like a cookie cutter. Like they just want things to be simple 
They don't want to deal in nuance. They just want to, uh, you know, everything, uh, everything to this side is X and everything to this side is, is Y. And they want a hard line in the sand and anything, anytime they're confronted with something that makes them have to do any other calculus other than just that simple, you know, sort, is it X? No, then it's Y. Uh, they're, they're not able to process it and they have to resort to, well, I guess it must be, it, it, it's, it's, it's not pure, no King, but Christ anarchism, you know, so it must be that you're a violent statist. I'm not sure if it's a desire to be simple, and I would describe myself as a hardliner. So, I mean, I'm I'm this I'm a it's either yes or no kind of a person, sure. but there is also a personality. You use the word personality, and I think that's something that has to do a lot with it. That there's a personality that that likes to be very different. It, the word holiness sometimes means separation. They want to be really, really separate from the state. Right. And this separation takes on a, a kind of very religious, very, I don't know, I'm not sure what the word is exactly. I know, I know what you're getting at. It's like, I mean, I think other people would use the word like, it's almost like a religious piety, right. um, even though I don't necessarily think that, you know, it's, it, it's one of those, that's piety is one of those terms that I think kind of like maybe theocracy and anarchy might get a bad rap, but there's like, there's that whole new christian thing where it's just like oh it's not a religion it's a relationship and i'm just like it's right you know i mean not that it isn't a relationship but it is also religion but in the true sense of the word religion it's not worlds or man's religion it's god's religion uh but uh but yeah i i think it's it is sort of like this almost this i describe it as almost a a a a spirit of that reminds me of the Pharisees where um, not that I would say that these people are being uh, to the same degree or scale being like the Pharisees, but it's, it's similar in that uh, they're very concerned with their appearance being uh, righteous or appearing to be righteous. Right. And it's like, they don't want to be accidentally misconstrued by anyone uh, as, as not being righteous or consistent on on those issues and 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 also i think to to give them you know not not to just criticize them i think that um because like i talked to our mutual friend craig about this uh a few weeks back and i know his main concern is really not that his concern is he doesn't want to be a stumbling block he doesn't want to confuse people um he's just like listen if i'm you know it, it seems to be too complicated to kind of ride this line we should just tell people the state is evil and therefore you shouldn't engage in it at all for any purpose because otherwise you're going to confuse people and be a stumbling block. And I can, I can see his point there. Um, But I've always kind of had the mindset more similar to yours where I feel led to kind of go meet people where they are at. You know, I I have a, I have a heart to go, you know, I, I like talking to Christian anarchists, but you know, I also like going and talking to people who um, are, you know, very much entrenched in the state. And I like going there to challenge their statism and to challenge their 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 secularism and to and if they're Christians to to challenge their lack of faith in God. Um, but you can do so more easily by engaging them in those avenues, in those platforms where they are most paying attention. Um, and you you know, even just one one deviant voice 
among the rest can act like a little bit of a like a mind virus. It can plant a seed in that person's brain, where you know it might not it might not bear fruit at first, but you know uh, a good example of this would be Ron Paul. Now, I mean, Ron Paul is not out there preaching Christian anarchy. I'm not trying to say that, but just in terms of uh, just watching the cause and effect of what his position was, he was in a position of being involved in politics. Uh, and really, if you look at his political career, I, I'm, I'm not sure he really accomplished anything in terms of, you know, legislation or anything. But what he did was he he put out that little mind virus. He put out those ideas that were so uh, different than the uh, the message that all the other politicians were saying that, you know, many of the anarchists and libertarians that exist today trace their initial journey to this position as coming from Ron Paul. And I think, um, you know, that's kind of, to me, now you're not doing, you're doing it kind of more from a, I think a, uh, you know, the, uh, theonomic Christian anarchist perspective, you're adding those elements in. And to me, that's, you know, all the better, you know, the more, the more, you know, that's an even more potent message than what, you know, you're kind of saying the same things Ron Paul was saying, was saying in terms of being anti-war, anti-Fed, anti-state, but also adding in the element of, you know, not just reject, not just showing what we should reject, but showing what we should embrace. And, you know, to me, uh, you know, there, there's no way to calculate how, how much good God can use that for. Planting seeds. That's what I do. That's what I like to do is plant seeds. Yeah. I don't expect to see the harvest. And my harvest that I want is not necessarily getting elected even. That's not even what I'm looking for. But I am planting right. seeds, and I would like to see those seeds develop. Um, and I go where the, the, the nice thing about being a candidate, even though I'm by any, by any pragmatic, you know, Carl Rove would say, you're not a candidate at all. I mean, he would say, you're not a candidate. And you're not doing anything that a candidate is supposed to be doing, like raising money and doing all the things that candidates do. But what it does give me a chance to do is to get in front of people who are involved in the political process. The people who show up at a candidate forum or a town hall, these are the people who really, they buy into the political process. And so I'm challenging the people who are the biggest propagators and supporters of the political process. And hopefully also I'm reading some, reaching some people who are open to the libertarian message, which is to question statism and right. people who want to be left alone from the state. But, you know, you, you don't get much accomplished without having a conversation with these people, all these different people. You've got to talk to them and engage them and, and make them think. So yeah, that's and, what I yeah. try to do, make them think. And, it's, and to me, the, the other analogy I use is it's, it's like giving, uh, you know, we have to give our children milk before we can give them bread and bread before we can give them meat. And, you know, if I'm confronting someone who is a hardcore, you know, MAGA hat wearing uh, Trump Republican right now, um, you know, not that the conversation can't be fun. If I start out with no king but Christ and just, you know, starting out the conversation with like a very like in your face, here's Christian anarchism, stop being a statist, you know, stop, you know, I mean, I'm not saying there's not value that can be had from that conversation. Um, but I think what can also be valuable and what I think is oftentimes more productive is to go to those people, see where they're at and find the positions where perhaps 
they might be the weakest or the most amenable, um, or even the ones that they care about the most, that might be a better way to, to find the things they care about the most and to offer them, you know, those little seeds, the little nuggets of truth that get them to challenge their perspective and to realize, like, listen, I'm not going to, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to move someone from radical statism to Christian anarchism and one fell swoop, you know, but if you can build relationships with people and, and be a constant presence in, in these people's, in people's lives, um, you can gradually nudge them in the right direction. Um, and, and so I know I received criticism for sharing, I mean, I think two over the past six, however many months it's been since her campaign started, I've maybe shared two posts of Joe Jorgensen. And it's not even that I'm a huge, like, uh, I'm not out there like raving about George Organson. But when she makes a good point in a post, I might share it. And I might, you know, share her platform with different statists I encounter. Not because I think, you know, George Organson is going to win, just like you, you're not going to win. And it's not because I think that George Organson is a, you know, she's not a Christian anarchist. She's not like a, uh, a, a paragon that I would point to in terms of like someone to emulate, but, you know, in terms of pushing someone in the right direction, I think that might, you know, if the libertarian candidate is good, I, I didn't refer a lot of people to Gary Johnson <laughs> and Bill Weld, but, but Jorgensen and Spike are a lot more principled to the point where I feel easier. Uh, I, it's much easier to point people in that direction. Um, and, and for, you know, me, my experience in becoming an anarchist was, you know, that brief pit spot, that, that brief pit stop in libertarianism, where I realized uh, through kind of like experience it, experiencing it, that minarchism doesn't work, that, uh, you know, the system is so rigged that when you start to realize the system is, is, is flawed, and then you go, well, if we could just vote the right people in, and then when it clicks that the only people that are actually moral and qualified that would run are they have no chance at hell in hell of winning. And it's like that, that is when it starts to click in your brain that, you know, and, and you start to become open to, to kind of backtracking your presuppositions of, of, of statism that we're brought up with. Um, but I, I, I don't, I, I think that perhaps you and I might, what we might share in common is we focus on understanding that, for people, it's a journey, and uh, I think that other people might be frustrated because they focus on just the end conclusion and not the the entirety of the journey that someone's going to go on to reach that conclusion. It occurs to me that maybe the issue is like this. I mean, here's how I'm seeing it as you're describing it. I want to start with a person where they are and take them step by step until they come to a position of anarchism. And right. of course, in most of the conversations I have along the way, there's going to be attrition. They're going to say, well, I can't go that far at this point. Maybe, maybe I can come back later and help them you know, over that obstacle or help them keep going on that path. But I want to get them on that path. I want to take them by the hand and help them as any way I can to get them on that, to get them to that goal of a stateless society. On the other hand, the people who criticize me for running, I think their goal is not so much to persuade that person but to denounce that person as evil and to say, I am not like you. I am separate from you. I am holy. I am a prophetic witness against what you stand for. And to just leave them where they are and say, I don't want to do what you're doing. 
and make that separation real clear. Hmm. And, and uh, okay, yeah. I, can see, I can see how you want to separate from evil. The Bible says be separate, come out from among them, be separate, and so forth. I get that. But I also want, I think there's a, also a biblical mandate to take these people. I'm like, Jesus ate with the prostitutes. Now, that's not exactly. because he yeah. condemned, he, not because he <laughs> said it was okay to be a prostitute, but he was taking them where they were and moving them toward the kingdom. You have to help these people, and you've got to try to not be offensive and not to insult them and not to ta- say you're evil, even though they are, in a sense. I mean, but you want to, pers- I want to persuade people. I want to help people right. move in that direction. Yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And, and that was the other place I was going to go, which is that, I mean, that's, you know, the, the best model we have of how we're supposed to walk is Jesus's walk on earth. And um, he didn't spend his time retreating back into the, you know, the far corners of, of religious safety and separating himself from the sinful people he encountered. He, he condemned sin, you know, uh, you know, we certainly can't deny the fact that Jesus Jesus condemned sin, but he condemned sin while also breaking bread with the sinners, and while also engaging with them. And um, you know, I mean, to be a light in the darkness, you kind of have to be a light in the darkness. You can't just be like, "There's darkness over there. I'm going to avoid it." Um, there's a there's a line between being separate in terms of not letting the darkness sway your actions and your character. Um, but I don't think, you know, we're supposed to be in the world and not of it. And that means to be in the world. Now we all have different callings. I'm not saying, you know, and, and this is kind of a good label I use for this is the division of labor. It's an economic principle commonly, but I think it also is a biblical principle. Uh, the body of Christ is, is sort of described in this way. We all have different callings and giftings and we're all going to be put into different places. And I think we should spend less time uh, uh, condemning people who might have a different calling and gifting than us, and rather learn to embrace that, you know, we all might have different callings and giftings. And, you know, there might be some people that do things and interact with certain people and say things in certain ways that I wouldn't do it, but they're probably going to be able to, to reach people that I won't be able, you know, that, you know, those aren't, the people that I'm called to reach. Um, and, and I think that's, that's fine. There's no reason to, you know, it's, it's not a contest. <laughs> There's no, and, and, and that's where it, it does remind me a little bit of the attitude of the Pharisees where, um, you know, it was like they were concerned not with actually being righteous, but concerned with looking as righteous as they possibly could. And, and I think that is, that, that is a danger um, that, that I see, but um, well, Jesus had better insight into his audience than I do. I mean, he, he could read hearts. And so he knew what kind of message people needed to hear. Some of his audience needed to be told, you're reprobate, you're hopeless. And, you know, if you read Matthew 23, you whitewashed tombs. You mean, wow, that's pretty powerful. Jesus didn't think it was his place to try to persuade them because they were not redeemable. But he had a conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, which is, you know, more of trying to explain things than simply denouncing them. And, and my, my position is, I will try to explain things to anyone who will listen. And it's not going to do me any good, really, to denounce someone and to assume that they're reprobate and they're not going to hear the message and they'll never become anarchists. I'd like to assume that 
if they were carefully explained and persuasive and you're trying to work with them, that they could become, anybody could become an anarchist. So I'm just willing to engage anybody on that level. Yeah. And, you know, it's, that's, that's also how we're supposed to treat the gospel. I mean, we don't know who is going to receive the gospel and who isn't, but that's not our job. Our job is to preach the gospel to, to all ends of the earth and those that receive it, receive it. And those that don't, well, they don't, but, uh, and we'll try it our, tomorrow. Yeah. But it's not our job. It's not, not only is it not our job, but like you said, we don't have the capability to, to know who will receive it and who won't. I mean, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people before Paul went on that road to Damascus that <laughs> thought, well, there's a guy that you shouldn't waste time preaching the gospel to. But, um, you know, if if uh, it's it's not our job to decide, you know, uh, what ways and what people God will go and who he will use. Right. And and the timing, too. I I, I know that for the most part, most people who hear my message the first time are going to reject it. Yeah, and that's why that's why I say like the advertisers say you gotta you gotta put your brand in front of them seven times before they're gonna buy it. So I'm willing to I'm willing to take the heat seven times. Have people say you're a nut, you're crazy, that's nuts, or that's unbiblical. Get I get that too, but you know, and finally they'll say, well, you know what? I I guess I see what you're saying. I'm not ready to buy yet, but I think I see what you're saying now, and it's not unreasonable. It's not crazy. It's not insane. And then maybe eventually they'll come around and say, you know what? I think I think I'm gonna join this program here. And you're right, not everybody is called to be a candidate, but that's just that's just a vehicle for reaching people. It's just right. a it's just a it's like dressing up for Halloween. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And there's nothing scarier than a politician. That's right. <laughs> uh well, hey man, it's um I think this has been a good conversation. I think that's a good place to to uh wrap it up. But yeah, I mean, uh certainly have to do this again sometime, but uh, I will definitely, uh, all the links and stuff that we uh, brought up over this conversation, I'll put those together and share them for anyone who's interested in reading them. Um, and uh, yeah, anyone who's uh, hearing these messages for the first time, I encourage you also to check out those passages we talked about. Go check out First Samuel 8. Go check out, uh, uh, what was it, the, uh, the, pa- the passage in Mark that you talked Mark about. 10. I mean, Mark 10. Um, yeah, I'll share those. I'll put those passages in the uh, in the comment section as well, um, because uh, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, what I want people to get out of this is um, what we what we do share in common with all who are, you know, in this Christian anarchist sphere, it, and it seems to be a growing sphere. I mean, um, every day I'm surprised by how much groups like anarcho-Christian and the Christian anarchist groups are, are, are growing. And, um, you know, even to the point where, you know, I, I know, I know Christian anarchists in my own community, which is just like a, you know, uh, surreal thing at times. Um, but I think it's a growing, uh, growing phenomenon because people are starting, starting to wake up to, uh, you know, just how, diseased the state is and 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 wanting uh for something more and wanting uh, christians in the church to actually embrace and you know be for the kingdom of god and not for these uh not for these fallen kingdoms of of men that we find ourselves subject to so uh so yeah i, I love the conversation love the stuff you're doing and uh hope to do it again sometime 
All right. It's been good. Thanks for inviting me to your site. Yep. Thanks, man. Have a good night. You too. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.